My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we are talking about writer-director Marie-Claude Treyu. This is how we are going to kick it to the next level. This is how we are going to get the Patreon up to $2 million a year. Oh man, $2 million. I would love that. By only talking about the most obscure filmmakers we can find. But I'm, I am glad you brought this one to our attention. I, you know, when it comes to picking filmmakers like this, I like it because when people put it into Google, it, oh. English language will be the first ones that come up. That, well, that is definitely true because when I was looking for information, uh, mm. I found one article yes which I, I know you also found and i found the french wikipedia page yep which <laughs> there is no english wikipedia page there is not but uh, you will be hearing more about this filmmaker soon i think absolutely a lot of her films are getting restorations specifically her first one simone barbie ouverture from 1980 is getting a lot of attention recently because a new remaster of it came out and i think that there is a lot that her filmography offers that unfortunately we will only be be scratching the surface on this for the specific reason that I thought more of her films had English subtitles well, and they do not. So this is a filmmaker, yeah, that you brought to my attention. And aside from, you know, the nakedly cynical reason of uh, the algorithm and mm-hmm. uh, search results, what attracted you to this filmmaker? I just like the vibe of her first movie and that it seemed to be a, from a perspective of filmmaking specifically from France that I'm not really that familiar with like 1980 French filmmaking like I would probably struggle to mention any filmmakers from that period that I'm super familiar with well I'm excited to get to know more of her work I do hope that there are more restorations in the pipeline Mm -hmm. there are I'm sure there are and like there is such appetite for like female filmmakers and Mm -hmm. you know the suppressed history of you know female filmmaking that I think we will hear more I am intrigued by the two movies that I watched this week two movies I watched are like very slight and very evocative mood pieces if you will yes and i would like to spend more time with her just to acclimatize myself to that style a bit more i was surprised to learn that simon barbe was released on dvd by image entertainment in 2001 and the box copy of it is like where eyes wide shut explored sexual scenes on a bizarre journey through new york city simon barbe ou la vertu blazes its own risque path through fascinating tours through the seamier side of Paris. That is not true. Well, yeah, no wonder it didn't catch on. I mean, (laughs) that is a very misleading box art. False advertising. So before we get to the films, a little bit of biographical information. And yes, I did have to uh, scrape the internet to find any biographical information. I found a French podcast on her and even the podcaster says, oh, the movie I'm talking about today was only playing in 10 theaters in France. So it's not even like she's a very well-known French figure. But I think that what's really interesting about her is kind of the direction she went through her career and she's also very involved in the kind of directors that were working in France with one of her films I'll talk about a little bit later the entire cast is made up of directors acting and she was not without champions Mm -hmm. uh, but she was without larger mainstream exposure. Yeah, exactly. the people The people who loved her films really did love them, and eventually I think there will be more of them. But she was born in 1948 in Toulouse, France. Early in her adult life, she was a film critic, writing for such French journals as Cinema and Art Press between 1974 and 1977. 
Much of what I know about her, and I think much of what you know about her as well, comes from an article by Elizabeth Lebovici, which was uh, translated into English on another-screen.com. Yeah, Another Screen is a website that hosts women directors, Mm -hmm. and they hosted the restoration of Simone Barbie, and there was this long article from a French book that really goes into the making and background of that movie. So Elizabeth Lebovici writes of her early film criticism, and I'm quoting... Reading some of Trehu's articles in the 75th and 76th issues of Cinema, I noticed a pattern. They almost always concern cinema that is said to be other. Argentinian films about the fight against fascism, films about Elan's Chile, films about madness, apartheid, and goon squads. She also goes on to note that Trehu was a fan of such filmmakers as Jean-Luc Godard, Chantal Ackerman, and Straub Huet. And you can definitely see that in the films that you watch, that that inspiration, especially Ackerman, is definitely there. But being a film critic doesn't pay the bills. She did many other kinds of jobs, too. She was a cashier, a courier, a movie theater usher. Uh, That will become germane to the first feature film she directed. But she entered the film industry as an assistant to the director Paul Vesciali on his 1978 film. The English title is Drugstore Romance. And he would go on to produce her first movie under his production company, Diagonal. Mm -hmm. And if you read... Diagonal. Apologies, my French is very rusty. (laughs) If you read the article, there's actually a kind of deep dive into Diagonal, the production company. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I mean, I learned from the article that it was both a film production company and a catering company. So they went out, they pay the bills. They catered weddings, corporate events. That's where the real money was. And it was based out of uh, Vesciali's home studio. And it's said to have had a very community atmosphere. You know, it's various actors and directors would often hang out and congregate there, not unlike the Warhol factory. I mean, even that essay points out that Simone Barbie is a movie that is made up of all of these people that were around and working through this kind of like art collective that even the composer is an actor or their friends are in the movie or ex-lovers are also actors in the picture, which gives it the feel that it does. So it was her experience as a movie theater usher that really informed it. Let's be specific. Oh, yeah. Porn movie theater usher. Yeah. So this film is a sort of uh, this film, which was shot in 79, released in 1980, a sort of understated, evocative, minimalist might be the wrong word, but much is unsaid, a character study with this very clear three act structure of, of these three kind of Sorry, I'm saying minimalist again, but you you know what I mean. It's kind of like hangouts or just like waiting for something to happen, with the first one being... And uh, they don't announce immediately what the meaning is. No, uh, that it's two uh, women that are ushers at a porno theater, just watching the people go in and out, interacting with all the men that are coming in, and just kind of being themselves and showing their character through their reactions to all of this stuff. Just one workday at this job. Yeah, I mean, I learned from that article that, you know, porn was big, big business at the time in France. In 1974, porn films sold 24 million tickets. Uh, The following year, though, new taxes were put on pornography, so it became uh, more of a smaller distribution circuit. What I enjoyed about this opening sequence is that, like, the porn milieu, like in the theater, is usually relegated to, like, skeezy when we're going into these kind of things. And here it's just a job with asshole customers. It's it's very matter-of-fact. I mean, it all takes place in the lobby of this Mm. theater. They're like ticket takers, Basically. And you you hear the porn film. You, yeah, you hear the moaning. Throughout. Yeah. And like when the doors open where characters go in and out, it just gets Good. really loud. And then it goes away when the doors close. Yeah, but, but it's ever present and it becomes like it becomes meaningless mm-hmm. pretty quickly. It just becomes this din that you you're not used to. But yeah, the main character is Simone, played by 
Ingrid uh, Bour- sorry Bourgeois. Ingrid Bourgeois. I'm not 100% sure. She's one of the two ushers in the Montparnasse district. The other usher is named Martine, played by Martine Simonette, who presents as a more dominant figure. And you think at first it's actually going to be her that's the protagonist of this film because she walks into the scene, she's late, and the camera kind of stays on her and Simon is the dominant alpha of this mm-hmm. duo who's the boss, who's kind of like the one that confronts any issue that comes up, whether it be somebody who complains because uh, they didn't think it was going to be a gay porno <laughs> or that it's like very smelly in one of the theaters that she has to go spray it down. We should point out as well is that this is happening in this first part in real time, mm-hmm. that there's no cuts in time. We're just seeing all of this kind of like people going in, people going out. The guy who comes out and yells at them because the projection is so bad. Like, I'm the filmmaker. He's the filmmaker. Yes. Yes. And the two of them, you know, the, because it plays out in real time and because there are, minutes where nothing really happens it has a bit of that like goodbye dragon and energy to it mm-hmm. at times and you just sort of sit with these characters as they you know they they smoke yep they, they read a book they play dice uh there's a bit of a clerk's quality to it too as they're <laughs> kind of like you know just kind All of right, mild- I'm gonna write that new back copy now <laughs> Simon the new clerk the original clerk yeah That's sexy yeah uh you know they just have a, a slightly contemptuous of the theater's uh male clientele but not not overly contemptuous. No, at one point they say, "Are we? Were we a little hard on that guy yeah. <laughs> when they were kind of like chased him off because he was being a little bit annoying?" So there's some awareness there as well. But they take no guff. No, they don't. And I think that's what's important about the Simon character is that every you know sequence that she's in, she's always in control of what's going on. She's never kind of you know when you say that kind of like goodbye dragon in those characters are trapped within their environment and it's happening around them, and that's where the point of interest comes. While in Simon she is forward that even though like the second part of the film when she's kind of waiting for something that like she's still kind of like all right where are we going like i'm gonna get going and she leaves on her own accord this first part of the movie too the director talked about that what really fascinated her is that these are also characters i say that they have agency but they're also trapped in stasis where there is like a world behind them that you hear and also the world in front of them in front of the glass where you see the street happening and that they are just stuck in the middle of this basically trying to grab whatever agency they can with all the people that are walking through. Now, Act 2 takes place at a nearby lesbian bar. It's a little like cabaret. You mm-hmm. know, there are dance acts and acrobatics. And, and it should be pointed out, this is also a secret lesbian bar mm-hmm. that you have to get in through a passcode system. Now, she's uh, Simone goes there. She's waiting there to meet her girlfriend, who I think is, is a sex worker of mm-hmm. some kind. Her girlfriend just stands her up, and she's like, oh, can we go now? Can we go now? And she's like, oh, we'll go soon. And, you know, we spend 30 minutes or so in here just seeing the various goings on. I mean, it, t- it took a little while for me to kind of get a handle on what the movie was doing because you've got this protagonist who for most of the movie doesn't seem I mean, it's part of the movie strategy, but for most of the movie doesn't seem to like take charge of the narrative. You know uh, what I mean? You don't think so? Well, well, sorry, she actually does take charge yeah. of the narrative, but it's like the movie drifts around for a long yeah, time. Yeah, she's in control, but the movie is following all the things that are coming right. within her kind of purview i mean this sequence in particular is just her sitting back kind of watching people do things right and like i'm i'm kind of there with her waiting for something to happen you know you didn't think the gladiators that come out and like uh, sorry i need i need to be precise what i'm saying because i actually love the second act of this movie there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens and none of it particularly explained either yeah but like there's a sequence where one of the waitresses comes up to her and tries to like sell her some like garbage and that another character is like don't do it and she's like no i don't want it then 
And she's like, ah, why'd you have to blow my spot? So eventually she leaves. And this leads to the third act of the movie where she, you know, really takes control of the film. Basically, someone catcalls her uh, from a car. He's like, you want a ride? And then she decides, you know what? I, I do want to ride, but I want to drive. Yeah. <laughs> like literalizing the taking of uh, uh, control. And it leads to this conversation between the two of them where the power dynamic shifts almost instantly and very rapidly. Mm-hmm. The movie ends after that. I don't think I'm particularly spoiling. No, spoiling like she gets home because it's because again, nothing, nothing really happens in the film except for everything, you know? Yeah, well, it's all the characters that are kind of circling Simon. Like, what are their stories? What is going on with them? How is she reacting to them? Like, this is just in regards to her, even though that a murder happens, but I don't think she's there when it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other night for her, like from like working to going home till the last shot is literally the streetlights going out because morning has arrived. It's just like when any Which, other night. by the way, was accidental. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, th- that was happening. It was just miraculous that they happened to be filming at the time that the streetlights went out. They were not anticipating it. it. It leads to this very poetic touch in the film. So it's a movie, again, I started talking about it, of mood that like, and a specific mood that you know, people who like this kind of stuff. Would you love. call it uh, existential? Existential. I was going to go more into the kind of early 80s, late 70s, kind of neon drenched Paris mm-hmm. one long night movie. Mm-hmm. But also that kind of like longing for something while still being in control. Like you never feel that Simon in this film is like, what is my life? You do feel that a little bit from her coworker in that first sequence because there's like, she starts crying. She talks about her boyfriend, but Simon is like, you got to ditch that loser. Mm-hmm. Like, come on. You just got to move on with your life. Well, she's also, I mean, she's not an opaque character per se, no. but she is, she, she doesn't, she doesn't necessarily give us as an audience, anything more, anything more than she needs to. No, you know? like we don't really know who Simon is. We, we see her act and through that, you know, kind of action, you can say, oh, that's how, what kind of person she is. Like she talks a lot. I mean, that we see season. how she relates to other people. We yeah, see exactly. how she relates to the coworker, the people at the bar, her absent girlfriend, the guy in the car. She is a very like independent character. And present person. And, and really it's the way that she moves through the world that defines her character as much as anything anything else. And so after this movie, the director, Marie-Claude, kind of like drifted around and she did like documentaries. Mm-hmm. But if you look at her filmography, she basically had like one major fictional film every decade. What can you say about the documentaries? What was she interested in? I can't say I've seen that many, like even her modern one, uh, Couleur d'Orchestre, which follows an orchestra. But like one of her seemingly famous ones, again, I can't really tell because even looking at Letterboxd, like no one has reviewed them. <laughs> One of the documentaries she made, Il était une fois la télé, is a documentary like going into the south That's of France. That's Once Upon a Time in... Uh... It, 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 once Upon a Time, there was television. Ah. And it's basically just asking kind of small village people about television. So it's kind of like, all right, what are their opinions of this? I only say that this one is a popular one because she did a follow-up to it 30 years later. Mm -hmm. And I would think that if you do a follow-up to something, that's probably because there was some attention to the first part. A lot of like TV stuff. She did like an anthology series where she did an hour-long segment. But let's talk about her uh, feature film from 1991, Le Jour des Rois. uh, (laughs) Good attempt. That's spelled R-O-I-S. That means king. Right. Yeah, le jour du... See, I can speak French. Uh, we're skipping over L'Anne qui a bu la lune, which is the donkey that drank the moon, which came out in 1988. And that one is an anthology film of southern France fairy tales. 
and like someone is telling the stories and you see them in a very minimalist style and that's one gets english subtitles and out there but uh le jour des rois yeah the day of kings well i just want to say i gave it three stars on letterbox but i'm actually thinking of bumping up the rating because mm. as, since i watched it it's been kind of growing in my mind i was a little taken aback by this movie because once again it's quite uneventful yeah and but, um, or is it very eventful well that's the thing isn't it it's like i found this movie very prickly and abrasive but now i think it was productively so I actually came to Le Jour des Rois after watching uh, one of her later films, Un Petit Cas de Conscience, A uh, Little Case of Conscience. And that movie, which was made in the 2000s, kind of like prepared me for the style of Le Jour des Rois. Because I'm like, okay, she's basically in uh, A Little Case of Conscience in full, like scenes play out in one take. And the character is just in a wide kind of walks through those scenes. <laughs> and that's where she's kind of evolving through in this 1991 film. So what's the plot of Le Jour des Rois? Well, you've got four sisters. There are three main sisters, mm-hmm. and then there's a fourth one that we meet later on. And they're in their late 70s. Yeah, they're quite old. They meet every week for lunch, and they're all very unhappy. The first one that we meet is quite unhappy in her marriage. In a, a little wink to some Jean Dunmen action, did you notice she was kind of in the same pose cutting uh, Oh, that's interesting. Potatoes. I didn't make that connection. I mean, the film starts with her... Like on black screen, you hear her husband just screaming at her. Mm-hmm. And when we cut to her, he's like in her face screaming at her. Right. There's the second one who lives in a retirement home. There's the third one who, you know, just lives with her husband rather less eventfully than the first one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's set on uh, the Feast of the Epiphany. It's a st- holiday I'm not that familiar with. I, yeah, I, I listen, I'm, I'm clearly a bad Catholic. I mm-hmm. couldn't tell you what I don't it think is. we've ever celebrated it. It feels like a French thing that would happen. So I was surprised that like I had never done it as a kid but I gotta say this movie gave me uh, wicked flashbacks to being a kid and hanging out with the elderly. To me, th- this movie is funnier in retrospect than it was when I was watching it. Well, I mean, to call it a comedy is, I think, setting up very odd expectations. I mean, for it people. is a sandpaper comedy. Yes. You know, it's quite unpleasant for a lot of it. I mean, do you find it funny that we spend like 10 minutes with them as they're going through a cemetery trying to find a grave? I thought that was very funny right. because the joke is you're going to fucking sit with them while they look for that grave. The joke is that they get in a taxi and the taxi driver goes all right where do you want to go they're like uh the cemetery and he goes the old one or the new one and they go uh the old one obviously because they're old right and then they wander around the cemetery did you find it funny when one of them has a complete breakdown i do in retrospect while i was watching it i was getting a little impatient but now i look back on it and i think that was funny and while watching the movie because it gave me such flashbacks i wondered have i ever seen a movie that has captured like people this old doing everyday things in a way that like I have experienced as an outsider. I mean, seeing them do these things. Forget about people that old. Has has the movie ever captured the frustration of looking for something and not being able to find it? (laughs) That's true. The way this one does. And then there's, you know, the lunch at the restaurant, Mm -hmm. the Chinese restaurant, which, you know, is not the most popular selection they could have made. No, but the way they talk, though, I'm like, oh, yeah, that casual racism I can hear all the time just from like, you know, elderly people that I hung out with. And I thought was really funny towards the end when they start having an argument argument over the rules or what the bible actually says like she's the virgin mary but how literal is that supposed to be is she a virgin in the sense that you would think or a virgin in the sense that she was free of sin she mm-hmm. was virginal of sin and this gets 
one of them so upset. Yes, but these are the kind of arguments I know I've sat there and been like, why are they arguing about this? But it's also, you can tell in this movie that like, they've done this a million times. Is this a breaking point? Like this little conversation? There's also that one of the sisters has a husband who joins them for the majority of, you know, the second half of the film. And you can tell that another one always had a flame for this husband for 45 years that they've been married and like how often does this come up it clearly hurts and this is all through the everyday of again almost a real time just going through this there's this one and then it ends in the same place it began you know does it because some characters may change i mean will it be a major change we don't know and at the end of the day kind of like the message of the movie is that there's a fourth sister who looks much younger than all of them Mm -hmm. is much happier and all they do is make fun of her for doing these things. Of course, she's completely ostracized from the group. (laughs) Yes. Having a better life. Like, the film is not subtle about, uh, you know, these old women who are very realistic, I have to say again, that have kind of dug themselves in this miserable existence that are just waiting to die, (laughs) arguing about, is it Chinese or Japanese? Is it Chinese or Japanese? Yeah, you know, this is a really good movie. I'm I'm (laughs) really, I'm really feeling fondly towards this movie now. I mean, it's a film that when I watch something like this, I go, man, the person making this, they had faith in themselves that oh, someone I know. watch it. I know. I genuinely kind of couldn't believe the audacity of it. <laughs> to, because you watch a movie to commit so hard to the bit. Like Simon and you're like, oh, I can understand that this is what they feel in this particular moment. She's building off of her own events of her life. Like she's talked about in interviews that like this is how she felt. These are the kind of things that sh- would happen to her. Mm-hmm. She's not quite there yet with Le Jour des Rois. And what's interesting about this film, I feel we're also missing kind of like a meta contextual thing because these actors, they were pretty well known in France. They weren't like big starring roles, but they acted in a lot of of Ophel's movies, a lot, a lot of Jacques Demy films. If you look at the photos of all of these actors on Letterboxd, it's all like them when they were young, like right. in their 20s. Mm-hmm. So that's also that other kind of like baggage that this film brings with it. But yeah, this movie does get, get at something about old age, which mm-hmm. is that old age does not necessarily bring wisdom and serenity. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No. It only brings regrets and like trying to win an argument because that's all you have in your life. <laughs> so like I mentioned, I also watched Un Petit Cas de Conscience, which I thought was really good, which is about about kind of a similar like Le Jour des Rois, but it's mostly about interpersonal relationships between a bunch of long-term friends with Marie-Claude Thériault playing a major role as two of her friends. They're a lesbian couple. Their house in the country gets broken into and the people that had stuff robbed from them, it was they think that maybe it was someone they knew and Marie-Claude Thériault plays someone who, they're friends, but she used to also be gay and she's not gay anymore mm. and she has a family and she has children and right. there's a conflict there and when they meet up she says something of, oh, maybe it was, you know, the person I recommended that work at your house that did it. I mean, it maybe it's not him, but that would be the first person I would think and then that haunts her for the rest of the movie where she's like, how could I say that they said the name of the police and like all these films there's no like big conflict but it's all like the little things that are said and it's all about kind of the past catching up with all of these characters and then coming to realize like where are we now in these relationships are they the same are they different I mean they can't be the same and it's a little bit miserable at the end of the day as well 
and that's the one that I saw online actually has a remaster. So like a trailer was posted like four months ago. So I assume maybe a company like Kino will do it and it will play like a bunch of little art house theaters as well. And is Marie-Claude Treyu still with us? Yeah, she is. When they screened Simon at a bunch of film festivals in 2021, she did Q&As over Zoom. Fantastic. So you can actually find some of them where they're translated as well. So she goes through like the basics of her career and things like that. But like the director we talked about last week, most of her films are not listed on IMDb. Now keep an eye out. You'll be hearing more. Oh, absolutely. Especially when uh, Simon comes out. I looked on Letterboxd. There's a lot of reviews i think people love it because it played a bunch of film festivals and it was available for free on another screen unfortunately not anymore which makes you think that it's probably gonna be popping up any day now probably you know a company like altered innocence would probably put out a movie like that i could see this being on the criterion channel soon. oh yeah and the criterion channel as well i mean simon was definitely a big inspiration because the uh main actor in it was cast in knife plus heart the french i don't know if you ever saw that i've heard of it i haven't seen it oh yeah which is like throwing back to that Mm -hmm. kind of style of film Mm -hmm. Uh, heartily now justin do we have any letters this week as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com the first letter goes gentlemen this is a gold ninja video question do you mind sharing how you go about acquiring the prints for the various gold ninja releases that justin scans both how you select and what to buy and how you even go finding them thanks so much shinjin important context if this is your first episode gold ninja video is the boutique blu-ray company that mm-hmm. justin here runs that's right and so prince when i got the scanner i was like how am i gonna get prints <laughs> like is this easily accessible like are they all gone now and it's been kind of surprising how many i've been able to find at places like ebay looking on forums facebook posts as well also like uh, one or two archives that you've been in touch with yeah archives have been able to send me stuff as well as long as i'm like straight up with someone like i'm scanning this film this is what i'm doing with it and i always make sure that they're all in like either the gray zone or public domain when i'm looking for these kind of prints and i i wish i had this machine like i feel like even five years ago probably be much easier than it is now i have access to stuff and because me and will we have a very varied tastes Mm -hmm. that like we can do like you know Taiwanese martial arts films. We can do Poverty Row stuff. We, we always got our eyes peeled for something interesting. Public domain is a tricky categorization because, I mean, there are a lot of movies that are essentially treated as public domain because, you know, the company that produced them has went, gone out of business, went out of business years ago. Like certain of these Taiwanese films or Hong Kong films, they were by companies that lasted two years mm-hmm. and went out of business 40 years ago but frankly i mean the prints are rotting away somewhere so yeah i'm happy to be able to like kind of save this stuff and put it out there something that i really had to get over gold ninja video is that i can't do the like as good as i would like for these to look that's something i need to accept when i do this kind of stuff because i'm only one man and i do not have any other resources or the system to do that. hey if someone listening to this is a financier or something like that, i would love to know how any of these blu-ray companies got off the ground because i don't know how they did it i don't know how you get loans or things like that mm-hmm. it's very confusing to me but also as to what you choose i mean and the very taste of it i mean like we just did this and, and I, it's coming out any day now our, our yeah. white zombie release where it's like white zombie is an extremely familiar movie and we took a 16 millimeter library print of it and scanned it because that's when you could see many different versions of it and this is just like one more version of a mm. public domain movie i think we're interested not only in the films but also in the texture of the films you yeah know? when i started gold ninja video i never in a million years thought that i would be releasing stuff that is not available other than maybe some like 
independent newer films, mm-hmm. which is like, oh, okay, then I can do that because it just seemed uh, cost prohibitive and it seemed something that would I just did not have the resource. Unless, again, some partner wants to come on who <laughs> has a lot of money. I would like that. And as for the independent newer films, I think the way you choose them is like... I like them? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, you know people who get festival screeners mm-hmm. and there's with the, you know, the digital landscape, there's a multitude of movies being produced every second of the day that mm-hmm. uh, don't have a home. So. Yeah, and to be able and to most of them, them are bad but yeah, you know not the ones that i release though because right. i have to like them when i put them out i know i've never picked something and gone like i want to put this out because it would fit this box because then it's like i'm gonna have to spend time doing stuff on this and so i would rather just do something that i'm passionate about and i actually want people to see also if you have a hookup for you're like oh i have a lot of uh, public domain black and white 16 millimeter prints or 35 Give me an email, please, because I, I just need to borrow them. I don't need to keep them. I actually, some of the prints, I'm going to have to donate somewhere because I do, don't want them. I'm not going to use them. I'd rather an archive have them. Mm-hmm. And then that archive be like, well, we, uh, we can't lend them out. No, no, no. I want a lending archive where people mm-hmm. can watch them and enjoy them in some form. So thank you very much for that letter. And our next letter is from Kyle Davis. And he goes, hey, Justin and Will, as an avid listener of the podcast, I want to thank you both for everything you do. You have accompanied me on many long drives over the years and rekindled my love for cinema through your deep dives. I'm curious if you would consider doing an episode on Lars von Trier or the Dogme 95 movement as a whole. With the new season of The Kingdom releasing soon, I think it would be a good as time as any to discuss von Trier's body of work as well as Thomas Vinterberg's filmography. Keep up the good work. P.S. As a classical musician, I appreciate your intro outro music. Best, Kyle. Lars von Trier. We've gotten a lot of requests for Lars von Trier. I'm a big we? Lars von Trier. Oh, man. I don't want to say fan, but yeah, I'm a fan. I mean, I'm hot and cold on him, but mm. you know. I like how he experiments and all the odd stuff that he does. He feels like someone that, you know, companies are going, eh, well, really, Criterion just put out a box set of his early films. That's right. Yeah. So I guess he's not that much of a, you know, because those stories about him like fighting with Bjork on uh, the musical are the ones I that mean, like, popped I, up. No, Nobody ever said he's a good guy. No, no, no. Yeah. Never. Yeah. I, there's a great book, Lars von Trier on von Trier, where he seems like a difficult guy, but one that's, uh, you know, self-reflecting all the time. And I really enjoyed reading about his process in that book. And as well as he's always trying to experiment, whether you like that experimentation or not, do you feel like it is just kind of a shaggy dog story played on the audience? Mm-hmm. That's up, up to you to decide or us when we finally do them. But I think, uh, yeah, probably sooner rather than later. I got that Criterion box set sitting yeah, there. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's put that on. On the, and on have the you did you ever have any affinity for the Dogma ninety five movement? I don't really like the way they look. If I'm being completely uh, honest, I love the way they look. Yeah, well, well it's been a while since I've seen any of them. The idea of them being improv—that's what makes me go. Hmm, I don't know how I feel about that, but I do like stuff. Oh gosh, I was gonna say the idiots, and then I remember what it's about—about about people pretending to be. Uh, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Well, it's been a while since I've seen it. I actually really like the ceremony which is Thomas Vinterberg's movie, which is really good. And he shot it on just like a cheap little handy cam as if Sam Raimi himself was controlling the camera. You have never seen a more dynamic film about such a serious Mm -hmm. subject. So thank you very much for the letter, Kyle. And this week on our Patreon, what are we doing, Will? Uh, we're doing Austin Powers in Goldmember. <laughs> wow. Will did not the, the approach thir- that. The third of the Austin Powers movies. With much enthusiasm. Hey, listen, listen. Austin Powers. Yeah, baby. I love gold. Do you want us to have an existential crisis talking about a movie? Listen, we haven't seen this movie in a really long time. Mm, we, we wanted thought, to like it. What What would it be like to watch this in the year 
2023 mm-hmm. and we found out yeah we did so check that out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club what are we doing next week will well we've done a couple of relatively obscure topics in recent weeks and our next one is a guy that you've definitely heard of and he's got a new streaming show out now which i have not seen shrinking starring uh we're doing an episode on jason sudeikis no 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 we're doing an episode on mel brooks <gasps> mel brooks so we're gonna watch i guess some of his classic movies probably right? okay mel brooks is interesting because his films are funny but I can't tell you when the last time I watched a Mel Brooks film. Same. Was. Probably not in 10 years. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, I- Oh, we watched Baseballs so oh, the podcast say, once. Yeah. Did we watch Baseballs? I think we did. Okay. I was going to say we have to watch Baseballs, but if we already did it for the podcast, I think that, uh, you know, we shouldn't do that. So we'll probably be talking about like Young Frankenstein. We're going to watch Blazing Saddles, the movie they couldn't make today. That's right. So Mel Brooks next week. Until then, my name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that if you haven't rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcast or whatever podcast service that you use, it would be very much appreciated. And I would also like to thank some of our new patrons, who include Robert Adams, Connor Willingham, Seth Baldwin, Josh Gresh, Chad O'Neill, Jerry Lolly, Kenneth Bigley, and Tim Hilbert. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. And if you want another podcast to listen to, specifically about comic books, make sure to check out the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast, where every week me and my co-host, Mike Wood, read a comic book trade paperback and discuss it. You don't need any extra context. The whole show is meant as an introduction to people that are familiar with reading comics or are just new to it and need some recommendations and guidance. Topics have included the Stan Lee Steve Ditko run of The Amazing Spider-Man, Judge Dread Comics, and coming right up around my half. Check it out at the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast.com. Well, Justin, did you watch the Oscars? I did watch the Oscars what with Emily. You, what are your thoughts? Uh, I had fun. Everybody that I wanted to win won. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, the middle stretch where All Quiet on the Western Front, a film that people have already forgotten about, won a bunch of awards, thanks to some, some of that payola. That was depressing. That was interesting to hear the director of the best foreign film movie thing his producer Ted Sarandos mm. I mean good God when Ted Sarandos is the producer of the best <laughs> is, foreign film is it a best foreign film you're like well it was shot in a different it's language. a multinational company mm. so <laughs> oh boy uh, well, what about you you watched the Oscars you were in a theater I taken in the big event I love the Oscars mm-hmm. I actually uh, ha- I hate the Oscars too <laughs> but you you like you're excited to go sit down and watch them I mean listen long ago I abandoned any thought that you know this had any meaning or no that any of my picks would ever win Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love a show. <laughs> what were your picks this year? Tar? I didn't even make picks. Did ta- ta- I mean, we did we on did the Patreon make episode. Okay, well, yeah. Uh, I, someone can go back and say what we uh, got right or wrong. Honestly, don't care. So don't, you don't need to do that. Yeah. Atar won no awards, right? A lot of things didn't win awards. Fablemans, Banshees, several movies uh, left empty-handed. It was Elvis didn't get any awards either. I cannot believe that Jamie Lee Curtis won <laughs> that, for that best support. That's guy. a travesty. Yeah. <laughs> for that, for that role. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, again, it doesn't matter. What I like is a lot of famous people in a room, a lot yeah. of movie stars. Glitz, Where was Billy Crystal? Where was Billy Crystal? I know. Like, let's see him do some songs. Who is the, like, are there movie stars anymore? Like, I'm trying to think of, like, what was the funny cutaways during the ceremony? Nothing comes to mind. Well, there is a movie star. His name's Tom Cruise, but he wasn't there. <laughs> That's right. He knew that he wasn't going to win. According to the New York Post, he didn't want to run into his wife. Oh, his is that what happened? Ex-wife. Oh, Nicole Kidman. Yeah. Yes. That's what they reported. I mean, but he also knew he wasn't going to win. Yeah. I expect him to do some shtick at the beginning or something like that. But I think we need to 
do something about the Oscar death montage because oh. this year, I mean, obviously our our friend Albert Pune. Yes, he wasn't in it. That's you know kind of not expected good, that, but it's not a huge shock. But some there were some big omissions that you would be more shocked by, like Paul Servino wasn't in it. Jean Louis Trintignant. Yeah, that's uh, right. If I pronounced his name correctly, <laughs> people know who you're talking great about. Great star, a great star. Mm-hmm. You know, many people like that who weren't in it. And you know, as film history opens up, but more like, and the more thing about people. That death montage is that it was like. A bunch of like executives. I know that were in the fuck that. I agree. Like the Oscars, especially the televised Oscars, are for an audience that knows nothing. We just want to see famous actor people, whether they be someone like Paul Sorvino that everyone could recognize, or Albert Pune, who's at least a filmmaker, not like an executive. People love Cyborg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> you just put director Cyborg, him standing beside Jean Claude Van Damme. So obviously, there's a lot of politics into who gets in that montage, and um, I don't know what we're gonna do about. It. It. They're like, he was on the website, and it's like, I don't care. That's a bigger insult. <laughs> yeah. 